This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And a warning that this episode of Doing Time will contain images of Aboriginal, audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that have died and graphic images of Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, And just to let listeners know that this is not a repeat. Uh, The summer programming for me is over. And I'm back to agitate and back to doing the Doing Time show and having um, marginalised communities coming in here in a safe environment to voice what they need to voice. First up on the show, we have Arif Hassan, Hassan, Hussein, Senior Lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, and he will be joining us to talk about the submission to the federal government's COVID-19 inquiry and provide an update on the Australian Charter of Human Rights campaign. And any mistakes of pronunciation are mine, and we will look at that later um, with Adif in a minute. And then after that, we're going to be speaking with Karen from the Black People's Union and First Nations activist. Hi, Karen. Hey, how you going, Marissa? Welcome. Thanks for having me. What land are you from? Uh, I'm a traditional owner from Wani and country up in the UN Nation. That's on what's now known as the south coast of New South Wales. Beautiful. So we'll be talking with uh, Karen later on in the show about Invasion Day and also some work that he's doing um, in solidarity with Palestine down at the docks. Uh, but pretty soon we're going to be crossing over very soon to to Adif from the Human Rights Law Centre. Break these chains and stop these killing games. 
Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday at the State Library. Isja Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show and we're going to be speaking now with um, Senior Lawyer from the Human Rights Law Centre. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Marisa. Thanks for having me on. It's so lovely to have you. Could you just introduce yourself with your name and title? Yeah, uh, my name is Arif Hussain um, and I'm a Senior Lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre uh, working to... Uh, advanced human rights frameworks in Australia. My pronunciation was closer than what I thought. Yeah, you did well. Thank you. <laughs> now, joining us in the studio as well is uh, Karen from the Black People's Union. He's a First Nations activist. And um, I'm hoping that he's going to comment on some of the Aboriginal um, the Aboriginal segments in, in what we're going to be talking about. So, first of all, I'm just going to quickly read out your bio. So, you joined the Human Rights Law Centre in 2023 as a senior lawyer working to strengthen Australia's human rights framework. Um, I believe that the the Law Centre has actually put in a submission. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. So, last year in September, the Australian government announced... Um, an inquiry into the federal government's response to the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so uh, they asked uh, the community and organisations to provide submissions on their views on how the government responded to the pandemic. And as part of that inquiry, the Human Rights Law Centre made a submission um, to highlight the inadequacies of human rights protection in Australia during and considerations of human rights in Australia during the pandemic. Um, as we are all aware, the COVID-19 pandemic um, is a one-in-a-lifetime um, event and a challenge that faced everybody in Australia, but um, also it revealed a lot of inadequacies in our laws in terms of protection of human rights in Australia. So uh, in our submission, we highlighted some of the issues that um, Australians faced during the pandemic, uh, including the issues around vaccine uh, rollouts um, and around um, the travel ban. So uh, Australians overseas not being able to return to Australia. And ultimately, uh, we said that and recommended that um, for a better response to a future crisis or an emergency like the pandemic, 
we would be better off with a Charter of Human Rights that protected the rights of Australians. So the Charter of Rights Campaign Coalition is an alliance of 95 organisations across the Australian community. And it was founded in 2018, wasn't it, to bring together organisations across the community united by a call for a federal human rights charter. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Um, so, uh, your listeners can find out more about uh, the Charter of Rights campaign that the Human Rights Law Centre have been running for a number of years now at uh, charterofrights.org.au. And as you mentioned, it is a coalition of organisations and people across Australia who have recognised that there is uh, a need for better protection for human rights in Australia. On the charterofrights.org.au website, you can read um, our submission that I just talked about, the the submission that we made to the uh, government's inquiry into our response to COVID-19. You can also learn more about the campaign and add your name to support the campaign. Uh, You can also learn um, on the website, you can look at our 101 um, uh, cases, which provide clear examples of uh, where human rights protection have have added value in, uh, in Australians' lives. So can you comment about, and Karen, you might want to join your voice to this as well and comment whenever you think it's appropriate, but let's start off, um, Arif, with you commenting on Aboriginal people with disability, and I believe the Royal Commission backed this up as well, that um, healthcare during the pandemic was substandard. Can you talk about what some of the things that emerged from the inquiry and also um, explain how this could have been different if there was a Charter of Human Rights? Yeah, I'm Karen. Welcome to jump in whenever uh, you want. But in in our submission, um, uh, we highlighted that during the COVID-19 pandemic, there were delays in distributing vaccines to prevent death and serious illness uh, from the virus. And um, this um, delay in distributing vaccines uh, impacted marginalised communities uh, disproportionately more. Um, and um, so that includes uh, uh, distribution of vaccines into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Um, so that, that's a major thing that um, we highlighted in, in, the, in the submission and the way that a um, human rights charter would improve distribution in the future is that there will be a consideration of the human rights of people in our communities and there will be uh, consideration by the government in terms of uh, which communities and the reasons why the rollout should be prioritised to. So in this case, uh, would be likely that we would, uh, the government could consider the human rights uh, of Aboriginal people and the vulnerabilities that they face in terms of the, the COVID-19 virus that we would have prioritised and made vaccines more accessible to those communities. Hmm. And not just vaccines as well. Like I remember yeah. when COVID first um, you know, hit in early 2020, 
we had so many regional and remote First Nations communities screaming out for not just vaccines, but, you know, just extra medical supplies so that if the virus came to their community, they'll be able to look after their people. And the government's response was to send extra child-sized body bags to these communities so that we could put our dead into body bags. It wasn't to give us health supplies. It was to give us body bags. That is... Go on. Yeah, the considerations would go beyond uh, vaccine rollout, but what those communities need to better protect uh, individuals living there, given their vulnerabilities to COVID-19, um, and provide better resourcing, that will be the consideration. Mm. And like even, you know, the rollout, when we look at stuff like class, um, I remember, you know, because at the time I was living up in New South Wales, just south of Sydney, and, you know, I remember hearing in the news and stuff about all of these um, private school kids who had managed to skip the queue and, you know, get all their vaccines early. But meanwhile, you had people who were actually vulnerable who, you know, couldn't find vaccines anywhere. Yeah, it's, that, that's an interesting one. And it's very true. It's, it's very true. And in fact, Arif and um, Karen, it actually says in the submission here, exposing the underlying inequities, inequities and discrimination and exclusion um, of Aboriginal people in the delivery of fundamental services and supports. That's what you're talking about, isn't it, Karen? Yeah, yeah. What's your opinion of that, Arif? Yeah, I think one of the major learnings for me um, during the COVID-19 pandemic was that uh, it revealed a lot of the underlying inequities that exist existed already in Australia. Um, you know, we heard rhetoric from the government at that time that we're all in this together. But when it came to how um, the restrictions were enforced, um, how the stimulus package was distributed, how the vaccine was rolled out, and uh, how com- different communities were resourced, um, and the, the different arms of the government, for example, whether it was uh, the police was used or more medical resourcing was used, that all revealed the underlying uh, inequities um, and, and lack of uh, human rights consideration um, in our legal framework, but also in our service delivery and in just the way that we do things in Australia. So that's the reason why. We are calling for a Charter of Human Rights for Australia and have been calling for, for a while now. And we hope that um, with the Charter of Human Rights, that those considerations around resourcing are, uh, are, are put um, higher in, in the priorities in terms of marginalised communities. You know, we saw in Western Sydney, for example, um, that it was uh, over-policing of of communities during the pandemic. So, you know, the considerations here, uh, well, sorry, the uh, Human Rights uh, Charter would ensure that um, the our response to the pandemic would be aligned with um, standards of human rights. Could you quote some of the relevant sections there? Uh, um, I put you on the spot. The, sorry, <laughs> sections of what? Of, of the um, pertaining to what you just talked about. Are there sections... Um, that you can of not our submission of the actual of the human rights charter. Oh, there's no yeah, human so rights charter. Why am I? We don't have it. So <laughs> we, we don't even have it. One. Maybe I'm ahead of myself. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, hopefully but I... we'll have it soon enough because oh. currently there is a parliamentary um, inquiry, a federal, the federal um, joint. But I thought Victoria had a human rights. rights charter. Yeah, doesn't Victoria? So there's, Victor- so there's state-based human rights charter. So the ACC, oh, that's right. and, yeah. uh, and Victoria have um, they all have uh, human rights. Uh, Protections and acts, but what this inquiry is about is the federal, the Australia wide, yeah, yeah, Australia wide response. Yeah. So just quickly, with this human rights charter, right? Is it the sort of thing? Um, I'm just wondering how it gets actually like implemented in practice. Is it the sort of thing that the government would have to legislate in as well, or that they could legislate around? Yeah. So, Kieran, you're right. You're you're pointing to uh, yeah, critique of uh, a charter of human rights. It would be a legislated uh, instrument, um, essentially a, a law uh, that will require the Australian government to consider uh, human rights implications of any new laws, policies or service delivery um, in the future. Yes, um, it is a legislated instrument. We hope that um, it will it will help in terms of the conversation, alleviating or um, prioritising human rights discourse in Australia, and that's one of the, the impacts of it. Um, the other one is that um, the uh, chart of human rights, even if it's legislated, hopefully it will allow uh, for people to take action when their human rights are undermined. And even if, you know, in recent cases, we've seen that charters of human rights at state level have been put on hold um, specifically in Queensland. But even around that, um, there's at least a discussion. It, it makes the news that, you know, the Charter of Human Rights was put on hold to pass a specific uh, law pertaining to a marginalised group. And there was a discussion and people could critique the government as to why they're doing it. At the moment, at the federal level, we don't even have that. So it's a, a step forward, I, I think, and it will be, I think, once in a decade opportunity to... Uh, to improve human rights in Australia, it's not um, the gold standard, but it is. Uh, it is. It will be an improvement. I'm going to ask you a question um, very soon about migrants, um, in specifically yep. in regards to what happened with India. But um, first of all, just wanted to clarify for, for listeners that. There is a human rights charter in Victoria, which I don't think was even implemented. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to to actually clear up any, any confusion um, about that. And this inquiry for listeners' benefit is um, Australia-wide. It's approximately 4, 4.16 and you're listening to The Do and Time Show with Marissa and Karen. And we're interviewing um, Arif from the Human Rights Law Centre. So, Arif, can you also comment um, on the the migrant situation? Because I know that a lot of asylum seekers and refugees were also um, penalised, if you like, and punished yeah. during the inquiry. And I did interview quite a few people in quarantine during lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, so just before I answer your question about that, in terms of um, the positive impacts of... Sure. Uh, a human rights framework. Um, there's two clear examples given in our submissions around where state-based um, human rights frameworks have assisted in the pandemic. So the first one was um, uh, quarantining, hotel quarantining of a child who had 
uh, autism spectrum disorder, and uh, they were quarantined in a in a um, hotel that didn't adequately provide for their needs. The Australian, sorry, the Queensland Human Rights Commission used the Queensland Human Rights Act to ensure that that child was uh, allowed to quarantine with their family at home. So that's a specific example of how it has had a positive impact in the pandemic. But to answer your, your current question around how it impacted uh, migrants uh, and, and Australian citizens in general. So we saw that during the pandemic, um, and at that time I was working on refugee rights issues um, as well. So we saw that um, there was many ways that people, refugees and people seeking asylum were impacted by the pandemic. Firstly, people being held in immigration detention in close quarters were at risk of getting COVID-19. Um, and and uh, people had to take legal action uh, to ensure that there was, uh, those issues were uh, prioritised and considered. Um, and the other, the other, other issues that were faced that, uh, that I noticed was that, you know, how there was a, a, a historically record high stimulus package was, was brought about by the government to, um, ensure that people were able to, uh, continue paying their rent, uh, continue, um, buying the necessities of life because of the restrictions wouldn't be able to go to work. They wouldn't yeah. be able to go to work. Um, that left out refugees and people seeking asylum on bridging visas, for example. So yeah. we had a, you know, a lot of refugees and people seeking asylum uh, who worked in the service industry, which was essentially closed down and shut, weren't able to access uh, payments from the government to ensure that during that tough period when we were supposedly all in it together, would get through it. In terms of like the uh, other issues that impacted uh, recent Australians is the Indian travel ban. So this is we're talking about Australian citizens here um, who were threatened with five years in prison and $66,000 in fines uh, for coming back to Australia. It's um, so basically there hasn't been an answer yet uh, from the government or response as yet? So right now there is a uh, parliamentary inquiry um, happening into Australia's uh, human rights framework. So the Human Rights Law Centre have also contributed to that work as well. And the hearing for that inquiry has uh, concluded. And at the, end of the Mar at, the, at the end of March this year, uh, we hope that the committee will recommend that Australia implement a Charter of Human Rights. Um, so at that time, when, when, when the community, committee hopefully recommends a Charter of Human Rights, uh, we need everybody listening, uh, uh, Australians across the country, uh, who care about human rights in Australia to ensure that the government implements the recommendations of that committee if it is to, uh, uh, to implement a Charter of Human Rights. So we're waiting for end of March. And people, if people want to learn more about that process, visit charterofrights.org.au um, and uh, hopefully by then, uh, end of March, the committee will recommend a Charter of Human Rights for Australia. Absolutely. And, and in fact, before we actually conclude, because I'm going to be interviewing Karen next about Invasion Day and lots of other things, 
including solidarity with Palestine. But um, yeah. I just wanted to also say that in the submission, it, there is an example here that I want to draw attention, and that is that the Australian Bureau of Statistics found that by January 2022, migrants were three times more likely to die from COVID-19 than the population generally. And, of course, that applies to Aboriginal people as well, doesn't it, because yeah. they, they die younger. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so we hi- that highlights um, the the issues around the vaccine rollout and the fact that um, that there are particular groups that are more vulnerable. So in that submission, we also highlight that uh, com- communities from the Middle East, or people born in the Middle East, were ten times more likely to die from COVID nineteen than members of the population more generally. So that that means that in that uh, scenario. There should have been a process in place um, in the design of the implementation that those vulnerable and marginalised groups or vulnerable to COVID-19 and at a higher risk should be prioritised for vaccine vaccines. Rather than body bags, as Karen was saying yeah, before. rather than body yeah. Karen, do you have any comments to make about any of that? Um, no, look, um, it's just it's good to see that, you know, this is actually happening and that you were actually, you know, taking that retrospective look on how the government handled COVID and all of the mistakes they made so that we're not making these same mistakes again, you know, next time a pandemic rolls around, because it's inevitable, you know, we live in a very global community. It's inevitable that we're going to hit another pandemic sooner or later, and it would be good to actually have some stuff in place to make sure that the vulnerable members of the community aren't left behind. Yeah, and then we can really be in it together. Go on. What was that? Completely agree with Karen that that you know this is um, an opportunity for us to look at what happened and how we can prepare to do better in any future pandemic or emergency, and that involves implementing a charter of human rights. And I suppose it's also about, in many ways, trying to decolonize because while there's colonization these things are going to happen, aren't they? Hmm. Yeah, are, are uh, we f- completely. Thank you so much for your wonderful work and the, and the work of the Human Rights Law Centre. We have interviewed many, many people over the years um, from the centre and, and I really love your work. Thank you so much for supporting our work and uh, for your listening for supporting our work. And if you want to learn more, visit charteroffright.org.au. Thanks a lot. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Adif Hussain um, from the Human Rights Law Centre. He's a senior lawyer. And we were speaking about the inquiry in regards to the pandemic and looking in quite a lot of detail, actually, about the Charter of Rights campaign and the submission to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet um, from the Human Rights Law Centre. And we'll be back shortly after a quick announcement, hopefully. Ticket. 
Creating space for women and gender diverse people to thrive, the Queen Victoria Women's Centre is now taking applications for their inaugural Feminist Historian in Residence. Over 12 months, revisit their historical records to uncover fresh stories and perspectives. The centre encourages proposals that challenge their history from an intersectional viewpoint and grapple with the complexities of colonisation. To apply, head to qvwc.org.au, closing Friday, February 16th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time Show. And next up, we have Karen from the Black People's Union. And I have interviewed Karen quite a few times on this show, and this is his first time with me in the studio. Hi, Karen. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me in. It's good to actually come into the studio for once. It's lovely to have you. So, for the benefit of listeners who have just tuned in, can you just introduce yourself and what land you're from first? Yeah, so my name is Kieran. Um, I'm from the Wanewandian people of the UN Nation, which is up on the south coast of what is now known as New South Wales. Um, I'm also the national president of the Black People's Union. We are a First Nations union, um, you know, we're a union for First Nations people, of First Nations people, uh, working towards a position where we can be able to exercise our sovereignty and self-determination here on this continent. And I also believe that you've been doing some work um, in solidarity with Palestine down at the docks and you've got a statement to read out. Should we start off with that? Um, yeah, yeah. So it's a, I've got a few things to read out. But um, yeah, Go so ahead. we've been down at the dock um, since Friday um, I'll just give a quick statement from the organisers of the Dock Blockade. So, since Friday, 19th of January 2024, unionists, activists, families and workers have held a community picket in the busiest international port in Oceania, blocking six worker shifts from entering the terminal and, standing, uh, and stranding four ships with 30,000 containers, forcing the Israeli-owned Zim Ganges to anchor in the bay and not enter the port. Riot police have brutally attempted to break up the community picket four times, uh, retreating due to the strong presence of community willing to uphold the Palestinians' movement's international demand to block the boat and to end the genocide of Gaza. Uh, on the second day, one of the members of the community picket was arrested and a few members have endured pepper spray um, to then reform the community picket line that has been held by hundreds of people committed to the pro-Palestinian movement. So, you know, a lot of people might ask why we are blocking the dock in the first place. Um, there's a few reasons. Firstly, we are blocking the dock because our comrades in the Palestinian trade union movement have called on unions across the world to stand with them and to take action, to halt the trade of arms and resources into Israel, arms and resources that will be used to empower the illegal occupation of Palestine and commit genocide and ethnic cleansing against our Palestinian brothers and sisters. Now, you know, here in Australia, we all know that Australia has its own horrendous track record of committing genocide and apartheid here against my people, as well as denying that it ever happened. However, one part of Australia's history that we can actually be proud of is that on the international stage, Australian unions have historically stood against apartheid and genocide. It was these exact kinds of blockades and resistance actions that unions such as the Waterside Workers' Federation and the Siemens Union undertook as far back as 1950 as the world struggled against South Africa's apartheid. When apartheid did fall in South Africa, one of the first groups Nelson Mandela thanked was Australian unions. You know, these actions have been proven historically to work, and the BPU is proud to continue this legacy of unions in Australia standing up to genocide and apartheid across the globe. 
there are you know more reasons than just that why the BPU has to stand at the side of the stand in solidarity and support this action. Um, firstly, you know it is having a major economic impact on both Australia and Israel. This blockade is costing millions and millions of dollars to the colonial Australian occupation, to the colonial Israeli occupation, and to the corporations that prop up and aid these occupations, like Israeli shipping company Zim. These companies and occupations are profiting unimaginable amounts of money from genocide. They have no morals or ethics, they are driven purely by profit, and actions like these ones help make genocide unprofitable and a poor business decision. Australia is still committing its own apartheid and genocide, and if we have the opportunity to disrupt the trade between two apartheid occupations, we have the ability to hit two birds with one stone and not only provide pragmatic material support to Palestine, but to hurt our own occupiers here too. On top of this, as First Nations people and as a First Nations union, we cannot and will not sit back and watch as our natural resources are being stolen and turned into weapons and resources that are going to be used to murder innocent babies, children, elderly women and men over in Palestine. We cannot and will not be complicit and complacent while our land and our resources are being used in such a perverted and horrendous way and we refuse to just sit back and allow it to happen anymore. Now, aside from the money aspect, we also see a very pragmatic aspect of these blockades and actions. Israel is very dependent on weapons and resources to be able to undertake its genocide. Without weapons, without bullets, without bombs, and without the resources to feed and clothe their military, the Israeli occupation has no chance. If Israel wasn't propped up by other colonial states like Australia, it would have already fallen. As it stands, Israel is already finding that this occupation is not sustainable for them. It's not sustainable financially, not morally, not politically, not militarily, and not practically. The occupation will fall, Zionism will fall, and Israel will fall. It is inevitable. Every day is another day closer to the fall of this Israeli apartheid regime. Every day we blockade weapons and resources to Israel is another day that we deprive Israel of the materials it needs to commit genocide. Every day we blockade is one more day we prevent those bombs being dropped on Palestinian hospitals, schools and homes, and one more day that we prevent those bullets being fired at what is predominantly children locked up in what is the world's largest open-air concentration camp over in Gaza. And finally, it's our moral duty. It's the moral duty of everyone who claims to possess any humanity whatsoever to do their part to stand up to genocide, stand up to occupation, stand up to imperialism and colonialism, and to stand up for what is right. And we call on everyone who is listening, whether you're a union member or not, to come down and support us on the picket line. If you don't have the capacity or the capability to put your own body on the line and stand down at the picket, then help in other ways that you can. Whether it's donating to the fundraiser to help striking workers who are missing out on pay during this picket, or the fundraiser to cover legal fees for our staunch organisers, whether it's doing things like dropping off water, food, sunscreen, you know, power banks, um, other materials and supplies to the picket, or whether it's doing whatever you can to spread this info um, wherever you can, you know, having those yarns, those hard, uncomfortable yarns with your family, with your friends, with your colleagues, um, sharing this information on social media, just getting it out there so that, you know, people know what's going on and people can support as well. Um, I just want to quickly yep. announce as well, um, there has been a snap action rally called for 5pm this afternoon down at WebDoc. We encourage everyone to show up and show support. If you can't make it there at five because you're still caught up at work or whatever, head down whenever you knock off. We're going to be going all afternoon and all night. Um, we're on our, what, fourth day now. You know, we're hoping to make it to five days, six days, seven days. We're just going to keep holding it as long as we can.
I'm just really happy that you were able to read out those statements and I really love the way that you interconnected it with the um, the First Nations um, experience. Yeah, well, it's, you know, ultimately it is very a very similar experience. Yeah. You know, we're both occupied people. We're both people who are undergoing colonisation and not just is it a shared experience, you know, in a symbolic sort of sense, it's a shared experience in that we actually share the same oppressors. You know, places like Australia help prop up Israelis' apartheid and Israelis' genocide. Places like Israel help prop up Australia's genocide and Australia's apartheid here. You know, these two colonial occupations couldn't be as effective as they are without each other. So, you know, it's in our best interest to stand together in solidarity to fight against the common enemy that we both have. And whereabouts is this location? Are you able to say that on air? Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, the picket is down at Web Dock. Um, it's on Web Dock Drive. If you head down to Web Dock Drive, you'll see everybody set up there. It's out front of the Victoria International um, Container Terminal. And, yeah, we've been holding it for days now and just doing a really solid job. But we do need more people down on the picket line to support us. So what sort of things are on that ship? Um, look, it's a bit hard to say 100% for sure because the way Australia's laws work, around our weapons exports it's very um there's very little transparency and very little accountability and it's hard to actually find um exact records of what is and isn't being transported on these ships however that being said we do know that zim which is the company that is you know um, operating all these shipping containers and these ships we do know that this company is being used to, to ship resources and arms from australia over to israel we, resources and arms, you know, such as the weapons that we make up in Benalla and up in Bendigo, you know, only a couple of hours up the road here from Nam, as well as stuff like the um, mechanisms that are used on F-35 fighter jets to open the bomb bay doors and to release the actual bombs. Like, you know, we've got F-35 fighter jets flying over Palestine, dropping bombs. These bombs are being dropped by mechanisms made right here in Australia. We've got an exclusive contract to develop these mechanisms here in Australia. And, you know, that's just a tip of the iceberg. You know, when we look at other stuff as well, like Pine Gap, for those who don't know, Pine Gap is a US military installation up in the Northern Territory. It is the second most important spy base in the whole entire world and the most important military installation outside of continental United States. This is here in Australia. Now, what Pine Gap does is they provide all sorts of logistical support to the Middle East and to, you know, the imperialism and the wars going on in the Middle East. To the extent where Israel's Iron Dome defense system, which, you know, for the listeners who don't know what that is, it's a, um, it's a defense system that shoots down incoming rockets and missiles. Their Iron Dome defense system relies on logistics from Pine Gap right here in Australia to operate. Like, they literally could not operate that without Pine Gap existing and without Australia existing. And it's not just the US over here in Australia. Down here in Nam itself, in Melbourne, over at the police barracks at the Vic Barracks, just on the other side of the river there from Flinders Station. Down there, they ran, they run as well a lot of logistical support um, for the Five Eyes program, which is, you know, a collection of imperialist nations across the world who share their information and their intel and their logistics. But all of this is run out of Melbourne, here in Australia. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. It and is. it's such a hidden thing happening here as well. You know, the legacy of Australia's imperialism is very hidden and it's very untalked about. And even on the left, you know, even amongst progressives and socialists and communists and anarchists and whoever else, a lot of people fail to grasp the extent to which Australia is an imperial power itself. You know, when we look at Africa, for example, 
Right now, Australian corporations have more mining companies operating in more African nations than any other place in the world. You know, we're all familiar on the left with how France and England went and raided Africa for all their natural resources. But Australia is doing that today to a greater extent than France or England did. And nobody knows about this. Nobody. Yeah, it's so it's really amazing. It's really good that you were able to, to expose that. And do you have any other statements you want to read up? Um, oh, give me just I'll just double check. Just double check. <laughs> um, no, look, nothing um, on this particular, you know, blockade that's going on now. But yeah, just want to re-encourage everybody to head down there this afternoon after work if you can, um, down to Web Dock Drive. Very, very important. Now, it's come to that time of year again, Karen, hasn't it? Uh, invasion Day. Tell mm. us about it. Yeah, so, you know, there's a few things we can um, touch on with Invasion Day. Like, you know, first I was like, why do we call it Invasion Day? It's probably, you know, a great place to start. Um, invasion Day is 26th of January. It's what's, you know, commonly known in mainstream Australia as Australia Day. But for us mob, it's always been Invasion Day or Survival Day or even, you know, a day of mourning. Like the very first time Blackfellas first protested against this day was right back in 1938 when we had the first day of mourning. Um, and, you know, just to put that into context as well, Australia Day as a national holiday on the 26th of January has only existed since 1994. Like the tradition of celebrating Australia Day on the 26th of January is younger than me. But the tradition of First Nations people, you know, marking this as a day of invasion, as a day of survival, as a day of mourning, that goes back nearly 100 years now. And, you know, it's something that we are very much against. Um, we do struggle against, we do resist. Um, and the reason we do, you know, struggle so much against the colony on this particular day is it marks the day that Arthur Philip, you know, disembarked from his boats and first set up the colony in Sydney. You know, common misconception, a lot of people might think that 26th of January actually marks the day that Captain Cook arrived here. Um, Captain Cook arrived here in April, I think it was... Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. It was either April 17th or April 28th. It's sometime in April. Yeah. yeah. But 26th of January marks the day that yeah, um, Arthur Philip first come into Botany Bay and first disembarked from his ships and started selling up the, the Australian colony, which is why for us we mark it as Invasion Day because that's the day when invasion first began, when colonisation first began here. Absolutely. And and there is there are going to be a few things happening with 3CR um, for Invasion Day, and I'll just play a bit of an announcement and then we'll come back. We show up, take no more. Black at the heart, take no more. True in our love, take no more. Tune in from 8.30 to 4 o'clock on Friday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. Between 10 and midday, we'll be broadcasting live from the March in Melbourne. And throughout the day, 3CR's Blackfella broadcasters will be bringing you voices of the elders, truth-telling, critical yarns with grassroots activists, deadly black music, and honouring warriors past and present in the struggle for sovereignty, land back, an end to genocide and a treaty. So keep it tuned in to 3CR on Friday the 26th of January from 8.30 to 4 o'clock.
And you're back with the Doing Time show, and it's approximately 4.40. So it's gone quickly, hasn't it, Karen? Yeah, it has. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, go on. Oh, no, yeah, I was just going to say as well, like, you know, just back to Invasion Day, just to put it into context for people yeah. as well. Um, the thing is, right, Australia is one of very few nations right across the world that celebrates and marks as their national day the day that they were invaded. Most nations across the world including former Commonwealth nations, they marked their day, their national day as, you know, the day that they liberated themselves, the day that they became independent. Whereas here in Australia, for some backwards reason, we all celebrate the day that we were invaded. It's, yeah, it's very silly, if you ask me. I know. What, what, how is that? What's the logic? I know, right? And the thing is too, like, you know, for us as First Nations organisers, and I'm not going to speak on behalf of every First Nations organiser, sure. obviously, but, you know, for us in the BPU and for myself personally, it's not just the date as well that we're against. You know, a lot of people talk about changing the date. For us, you know, we don't see any merit in changing the date because at the end of the day, what's being celebrated is the fact that Australia is this colonial imperialist nation. And, you know, people can try and reason with this however they want and people can try and deny this however they want. But at the end of the day, you know, when you're celebrating Australia and Australian nationality and, you know, everything that Australia is, you're celebrating genocide. You're celebrating apartheid. You're celebrating colonization and imperialism. You know, you're celebrating the over-incarceration of my people and the theft of our children and the theft of our lands and so much other horrendous stuff. So, you know, for us, it's not just about changing the date. It's about changing, you know, what we're actually celebrating. And now, don't get me wrong, you know, I want everyone, especially all the, you know, non-Indigenous people out there who, you know, support Australia Day and, you know, want to be proud of Australia and whatever else, rah, rah, rah. You know, don't get me wrong. If Australia was a nation that I could be proud of, I would be a very patriotic Australian and I'll be the first one to go out and celebrate on a national day for Australia. But as it stands, there's nothing to be proud of about this nation and there's no reason to celebrate. Exactly. I mean, you know, it, Australia was actually founded on, on theft. Yeah, it, on theft and genocide. And it's, it's a legacy that has continued until this day. You know, this day we still are having to fight for our land. You know, we're still having our land taken off us. You know, recently up in Queensland, for example, the Wangan and Jangalingu people, they had native title, right? Now, don't get me wrong, native title is the weakest, most pathetic form of land rights that you can possibly have in the Westminster system. But they had native title up there. And Adani wanted to put a mine in. The blackfellas up there said no. They refused. So the Queensland government extinguished their native title and gave Adani that land to go set up a mine anyways. You know, this is happening still today, you know, and when we look at stuff like our kids being removed from our families, back in 2007, we had Kevin Rudd apologise for the stolen generation. Back in 2007, when he made that apology, Indigenous child removal rates were already higher than they had been at any point during the official stolen generations policies. That was back in 2007. Every single quarter since, not just every year, but every quarter since, our child removal rates have gone up. And it's just, it's at such ridiculous proportions now that something like one in three or one in four First Nations children down here in the state of Victoria, at one point or another in their childhood, will come into contact with Child Protective Services or, you know, whatever the state equivalent name is down here. Yeah. And that is how ridiculous it is. That is how many of our children are coming into these systems. And, you know, when we look at how many of our people are being locked up and, you know, again, our people aren't being locked up because we're criminal people. 
they're being locked up for petty, you know, yeah. often victimless crimes. Something like 80% of First Nations people who are in incarceration are in incarceration for, you know, crap like unpaid parking tickets or for stealing a bit of food or for, you know, simple stuff like walking home drunk from the pub one night. You know, how many non-Indigenous Australians walk home drunk from the pub every Friday and Saturday night and how many of them have to worry about a 6-12 to month sentence as a result? You know, none of them. But for First Nations people, this is what we're up against and this is what happens to us. And, you know, it's at the point as well where, you know, it's so ridiculous that our people are more likely to go to jail than they are to graduate high school. Yeah. It's such a horrendous statistic. It's 1788 all over again because if you really look at it, that's what used to happen when all the people were thrown onto the ships from England to come here. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, you know, they've just, they've just outsourced that exploitation and that oppression to First Nations people. They really have. It's, it's like a warehousing. I mean, the example is Veronica Nelson. Yeah, yeah. What happened to her with the shoplifting? Yep. A petty, a petty crime. It's not even a crime. Anyway, she was probably just hungry. And then they, they put her in prison and she died. Yep. It's, and there's so many similar stories from right across the continent. And it's, it's, you know, it's saddening and it's absolutely disgusting. And the worst part is we can't get any justice for this. We've had over 500 Indigenous deaths in custody since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And of those 500 deaths, not a single police officer or not a single prison guard has actually been convicted. The vast majority of them, when they kill a blackfellow, what happens is they get a paid break and then they get relocated to another station with a promotion. They literally get paid and promoted for killing our people. They really do. And it, it's still going on, which means that there's nothing to celebrate on Friday. Yep, exactly. So on Friday, um, we are encouraging people to head down to the rally. Um, there's rallies, you know, in capital cities right across Australia. Down here in Nam, uh, the War Vic Collective, along with Free Palestine Melbourne, have organised a, you know, Invasion Day solidarity rally, um, you know, in solidarity with Palestine as well as in our own occupation here. Um, we are we do encourage people to get down to that. That's going to be at Parliament House Steps at 10am. Um, we also want people to stay tuned a bit. You know, I'm not going to make any announcements over radio, but we do have um, some spicy actions coming up on the afternoon and the night of Invasion Day. Um, you know, so definitely follow our social medias. Um, we invite people to come along to these actions, but, you know, obviously for obvious reasons, we're not going to announce them beforehand so that they can be disrupted. But, yeah, um, stay tuned. Um, be around the city. There's some fun stuff that people can definitely get involved with. Um, and just on that point as well, something that we're doing in the BPU in conjunction with a few other First Nations organisations from across Australia is we're pushing a seven days of resistance campaign. Now, what this looks like is we're encouraging people, not just mob, not just First Nations people, but our allies as well, to go out in the lead up to Invasion Day and to you know show our resistance and to show your own resistance to the colony. Now, there's different ways people can do this. Um, you know, it might be just doing something like something artistic, um, you know, making some posters or a song, some poetry, something like that, painting some banners and canvases. Um, or it might be a bit more along the lines of direct action. You know, people might want to go out and put up some economic resistance to the colony in the lead up to Invasion Day. Uh, we encourage people to get out there and just do whatever they can to resist the colony in the lead up as a part of that seven days of resistance campaign. And if you are doing anything, um, feel free to take a picture or a video, chuck it up on social media with the hashtag seven days of resistance. Well, it's approximately 4.48 and 
You might need a water soon, Karen. Yeah, it's getting a bit dry. <laughs> <laughs> I've been down at the dock as well in the sun, and it's just yeah, it's very dry. Um, I've been down there since this morning. Um, yeah, on and off over the last couple of days, just getting down there as often as I can. Um, you know, obviously, this is the thing too. Like, we understand that people have lives of their own. Um, you know, people need to be able to work, need to look after kids, need to you know do whatever it is they need to in their life. But if you've got even if it's just one hour spare. Head down to the picket and get involved with that picket. You know, if you've got a night spare, even better, you know, go down and spend overnight down there. We are blocking two shifts, um, both morning and night shifts. So, you know, they start, I think, about five-ish in the morning and about five o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, we are blocking both lots of shifts and we're manning this picket 24-7 down there. Fantastic. We'll just go. I haven't had time to play much music today, but that's okay because we've had some really great commentary this afternoon. I'm just going to go into another announcement and then come back. This summer, tune in to Health Sovereignty, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast for 2023. 12 hours of programs by people with disabilities talking about what health well-being and body sovereignty means for multiply marginalised disabled people, their kin and communities living on unceded Indigenous lands. All the audio is available to listen back at your leisure at 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2023. Or find the podcast by searching 3CR's Radical Radio on your favourite podcast app. And you're back with the Doing Time show and it's approximately 4.50 and we have got about seven minutes left and speaking to Karen. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, Karen, um, in comments? Oh, look, there is one thing that, Karen. you know, I've, I've been talking about this a bit recently. Um, it's a bit of a, I suppose, mental exercise for our allies and comrades and accomplices out there in Australia, our non-Indigenous, you know, supporters out there. When we're talking about Australia, and, you know, it fits so well because Australia Day is just around the corner. You know, when we're talking about Australia, when we're talking about decolonisation, one thing that we really need to do before Australia can move towards any sort of angle of decolonisation is we need our allies and not just our allies but the non-Indigenous people of Australia to decolonise their own minds a bit. You know, here in Australia, something like 75% of everybody in Australia, whether they're, you know, male, female, whether they're old, young, educated, uneducated, employed, unemployed, whether they vote Labour, vote Liberal, Greens, whatever, 75% of everybody in Australia holds anti-Indigenous sentiments and anti-Indigenous beliefs. You know, it's very much synonymous with Australian culture and Australian identity to the point where, you know, you can't be Australian without possessing some of these anti-Indigenous, you know, sentiments and anti-Indigenous thoughts. It's true. Yeah, it, it's, 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 it's so true and it's so, you know, overwhelming and in our face. And like so many people don't realise that they're racist as well. Now, don't get mm. me wrong. You know, I'm not saying that 75% of Australians are overt racist who, you know, are out there, you know, preaching that, you know, we should go lynch blackfellas and whatever else and stuff. But still, like 75% of Australians, whether it be overt or whether it just be, you know, some unconscious, you know, biased beliefs they hold, they have this anti-Indigenous mentality. Now, we really need the support of the Australian masses to be able to achieve equality for our people here in Australia. The only way that's going to happen is when people start challenging these, you know, anti-Indigenous identities that they hold and, you know, start doing the work on decolonising their own minds to be able to help with this. Because, you know, at the end of the day, 
we want people to stand with us and we want to stand with other people. You know, when we talk about First Nations liberation, we're not talking about First Nations liberation at the expense of non-Indigenous people. We're talking about liberation for everyone on this continent, whether they're black, white, brindle. You know, everyone together should be liberated together. It's very true what you're saying. And in fact, one of the really common things, the common themes that I hear quite a lot in certain parts of the community is when people say, oh, Aboriginal people have everything they need and they get all this money from the government, from Centrelink. And it really makes me ropeable hmm. because it's so not true. Yeah. I mean, look, if we had everything we need, then somebody needs to explain to me why we're dying 10 years or younger, why, you know, we're 10 times more likely to be homeless or unemployed or living in poverty or, you know, any other sort of social measure we're nearly 10 times, if not more than 10 times more likely to be suffering from. If we had everything we needed, we wouldn't be living in inequality here. Absolutely. Refugees in your own land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, back, back real quickly just to that, like, identity yeah. thing. You know, what people really need to do, and, you know, it sounds a bit harsh, but, like, let it sit with you and just think about it over the next few days. People need to kill that Australian identity in their own heads. At the end of the day, you know, we can't challenge Australia and Australia's occupation, Australia's genocide and apartheid, so long as we have people identifying with this system and with this apartheid and with this genocide. You know, we need people to kill that Australian identity and mentality in their head and to actually start looking at things a bit more, you know, along the lines of equality and a bit more along the lines of liberation and, you know, standing together side by side, regardless of our race or our religion or ethnicity or gender or whatever else. That is the best thing I've heard all year. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> I mean, it's just so, so well said that we've all got to stick together. Yeah, yeah. You know, the system, re it, the system really relies on us being so separated and fragmented. Divide and conquer. Yeah, exactly. You know, it couldn't exist, this system, as it does, without first dividing us. You know, that's how they conquer us. They divide us first. You know, the people united, though, will never be defeated. We're 90% of the population, the working class, you know, over 90% of the population. The working class united can come up against anything and can defeat anything. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. I have found your commentary refreshing and, and really fantastic. Thank you so much for coming. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's always a joy to come on. Absolutely. And I'll have you back whenever you like. Looking forward to it. It's approximately 4.55 and we've got about two minutes left until we're out of here. Thank you to Adif from the Human Rights Law Centre. I've got a really bad habit of rolling my R's. Could be because um, I come from Italian migrant parents. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're going to be leaving you shortly. Climate Action Show is coming up next. And we're going to be going out with our theme song pretty soon, Black Fella, White Fella by the Rumpy Band. And it's goodbye from Marissa. And? and goodbye from Kieran. And we'll be seeing you very, very soon. Um, so stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. I'm a bit slow on the uptake today. I had some really strong coffee yesterday and I've crashed. <laughs> I have to have more coffee now. <laughs> and get down to that to those docks. One more time, Karen, advertise it. Yep, yep. So, yeah, um, we got the picket going down at Webdock Drive. Um, we're picketing the Zim Israeli ship, stopping it from taking resources to Israel for their apartheid. And, yeah, everybody get down there. We've got a rally kicking off uh, right now, actually, as well. Okay. Thanks a lot. Rock up there. Bye. <laughs>